Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, open your Bibles now to Romans chapter 11. Bill Clinton, former President Bill Clinton, 1994, once said, If you abandon Israel, God will never forgive you. There is something really amazing about the nation of Israel, isn't it, when you think about it? Just their ongoing relevance and prominence throughout history, for all these centuries, they still are a central player on the world stage. We still hear about Israel in the news all the time. You hear about the relationship between the United States and Israel and how important that is. And you hear about the tense, negative relationship between countries like Iran and Israel. Just uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was an attack in Tel Aviv where four people were killed. And on and on it goes. We um, hear about Israel a lot, particularly their claim to statehood in 1948. And of course, Israel plays a major role in our Bibles. About three quarters of our Bible, the Old Testament, has to do with Israel. About three quarters. And of course, Israel's mentioned in the New Testament too, so it's really even more, probably close to about 80% of our Bibles in some way or form. It's dealing with Israel. Well, here we are in chapter 11 of Romans as we're going through this series on the book of Romans. And as we finish this chapter, um, we're going to hear more about Israel. And as I've been telling you over the last several sermons, since we began chapter 9, actually, the question that Paul is seeking to answer is a question very similar to the one that Bill Clinton asked. Bill Clinton didn't really ask a question. He said, if you abandon Israel, God will never forgive you. What Paul is asking in these chapters is, has God abandoned Israel? Has he given up on Israel? And Paul is so concerned with this that he's taking three chapters of the book of Romans to explain uh, what he believes to be the answer to that question. And as we get to verse 26 in particular, we see um, a very striking phrase. Chapter 11, verse 26, and it says, all Israel will be saved. And this is what we're going to focus on today, just trying to understand what Paul means by this. We're going to be reading actually verses 23 to the end of the chapter. That's a lot of text. We're not going to be able to cover every detail of that. We're going to focus mostly on this phrase because it's such an interesting phrase, and it's one that has been the occasion for a lot of disagreement and a lot of writing. Um, just by way of illustration, if you, you know, we think of world religions, you know, so you get Christians and Muslims, and obviously there's disagreements among Christians and Muslims, but if we just take Christians, we can divide them up into Protestant and Catholic, and we know there's a lot of difference between Protestants and Catholics. But if you look at just the Protestants, you notice that there's a lot of differences among Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians, for instance. And if you just take the Presbyterians out of that, you have a lot of differences between liberal and more conservative Presbyterians. And then if you just take that group of conservative Presbyterians, just within that small subgroup, you will have a variety of different interpretations and views on this one verse. 
So that's just a way of saying, by way of introduction, that this is a subject that we should approach with some caution and some humility and uh, a willingness to listen to one another, a teachable attitude. Um, for some of you, that this might be the first time you've ever heard of this, and it's just entirely foreign and completely new to you. But, but others here might consider this to be a major component of your faith, that your expectation for what God is going to do with Israel could have a lot to do with your devotion to Jesus and your ex expectations about the future. So this is a significant statement, and uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll do our best to try to make some sense of what God is saying to us here. So let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be starting in verse 23. I left off the verse 22 last time. So we're kind of, kind of mid-thought here. So in verse 23, when Paul talks about they, he's referring to Israel. So I pick up in chapter 11, verse 23. And even they, Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own Conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God, please guide the preaching of your word now. Nourish our faith, enhance our love for you, eliminate error and confusion, give us clarity with such a difficult text as this, and build up your church, draw the lost to yourself. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake and the power of your spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Three things I want to show you from this text with regard to this statement, all Israel will be saved. And the first thing here is that there is a mystery involved. And <clears throat> Paul mentions this pretty clearly here in verse 25. We'll be spending a lot of time here in verses 25 and 26 in particular. And Paul says, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery. So you see that word, mystery. 
Now, there are a lot of things that are mysterious in the Bible, aren't there? There are a lot of things mysterious about God. We're being told that God is a trinity, that he's one God who manifests himself in three persons. He's one in essence, three in person. That's kind of a mysterious thing. It's hard to comprehend all that that entails. Um, There's a lot of mystery involved in the relationship between the sovereignty of God and personal responsibility. How is it that God has sovereignly planned all things and yet we're morally responsible for everything we do? How does that work together? That's very mysterious. And of course, when it comes to the suffering that many of us are enduring, we find a lot of mystery. We can't understand why certain things keep happening to us, why things that we long for the most don't happen for us. We don't understand the brutality of some of the suffering that some people have to go, particularly when they seem to be godly, Christ-loving, Bible-believing people. And there's a lot of mystery in that, and we don't understand. But that's not really the kind of mystery that Paul has in mind here. He's not talking about something that is beyond our comprehension, because notice what he says, I want you to understand this. He's saying there's something about this that that I want you to see. See, a a mystery is something that is unknown. It's something that's secret. It's something that, that is concealed. But this is a mystery now that Paul is opening up for us. He is disclosing to us something that has been hidden. He's pulling back the veil and giving us eyes to see. This is a mystery now that's going to be unveiled for us. Later in Romans, Paul says this actually a little more clearly with regard to the mystery. This is the very end of the book. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed... It's now been revealed. It's now been opened up. Now, what is this this mystery? Well, you might remember last week we talked about the way God's redemptive plan has been working. That is, there's this kind of ricochet effect was the example that I used, the gospel kind of bouncing back and forth between Jews and Gentiles. That first of all, the gospel went to the Jews. The Jews rejected Jesus. And so the gospel then went to the Gentiles. The Gentiles received the gospel became Christians in droves, and then what Paul tells us is the time's going to come when the Jews are going to see what the Gentiles have, and they're going to be jealous of that, and then the Jews are going to come and believe in Jesus. So the gospel goes to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and back to the Jews. And so he summarizes this in verses 30 and 31. He just pretty much recaps what he'd said earlier in chapter 11. He says, just as you were at one time, disobedient to God, talking to Gentiles. You were lost, you didn't know Jesus, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience, because of the Jews' disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in rejecting Jesus in order that by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, as they see what you have in the gospel, that they also may now receive mercy because they're going to become jealous of what the Gentiles have and they're going to come to belief. That's, that's what's being unveiled. I mean, you've got to say, you know, who in the world would have, would have thought of it? Who would have imagined that that's the way God would do this? I mean, it is kind of an, an odd and unusual plan. It's not something anybody would have guessed or made up. And so it was mysterious. But 
What we're getting here is the unveiling of the ministry, the mystery, the disclosing of the mystery in the writing of the New Testament. And I think this is such an important point for us to grasp, particularly in this day and age, because this word mystery has been misused by a lot of people as kind of an excuse for saying that the Bible really can't be understood. You'll hear this a lot among some writers. You know, it's, you know, we can't really be too sure about who God is or what he's like or what he's done because the Bible's so mysterious and God is so mysterious. So is Jesus the only way to salvation? You know, we can't really know. It's, it's mysterious. Is there a hell where people go? I don't, you know, I don't know. The Bible's so mysterious. Is homosexual activity wrong? Is it displeasing to God? I don't, you know, the Bible's so mysterious. How can we say? How can we know? And there's this unwillingness among a lot of people to be clear about what they believe because they use as an excuse this idea that the Bible is mysterious. But, but notice what's happening here, friends. With the writing of the New Testament, God is not more mysterious. He, he's less mysterious in the sense that more information is being given to us to unpack and disclose these mysteries in former times. There's never been a time in all of history when there has been more to know about God than right now. Not just in the giving of the New Testament, but in 20 centuries of church history unpacking the meaning for us of the New Testament. It's a wonderful blessing to live in the New Covenant age. I'm not saying that there is no mystery left. Obviously, there are some things mysterious, like what does all Israel will be saved mean? That's a mysterious thing. I'm not saying everything is equally clear in the Bible. But it's a whole lot clearer on a number of issues than many people are willing to admit. The fact that so many people are offended by so much of what the Bible says is a testimony to how clearly it really speaks. If the Bible was unclear, why are so many people objecting to what it says? The Bible's a little bit like those sliding doors, you know, when you go to, to Marsh and, and you start to walk in and you know those automatic doors, as you get close to the doors, they open up and you walk through. But if as you're approaching the doors, you turn around and walk away, they close. The Bible's like that. As you draw close to it, the doors of understanding will open. But if you walk away from it, using the excuse that it's too mysterious and you can't understand it, it will only close and become increasingly cloaked in mystery for you. This is what a guy named Mark Thompson said, a confession of the clarity of Scripture is an aspect of faith in a generous God who is willing and able to make himself and his purposes known. God has something to say, and he's very good at saying it. But if you want to hear it and you want to know it, you got to go to the Bible. You got to read it, you got to study it, you got to meditate on it. And look for the mysteries that will be disclosed there. So that's the first point I want to make. There is a mystery here, but Paul is making it clear to us. So, secondly, let's look at the meaning. The meaning of this phrase, all Israel will be saved. So, recall. Paul's, first of all, recall his simple answer to the question that was raised by Bill Clinton about whether God has abandoned Israel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? 
Has God abandoned his people? That's the question. And Paul's immediate answer is, by no means. No. So at the very least, we know God is not done with the nation of Israel. He's not finished, but what that's going to look like in the future is the more complicated question. And you might remember last week that we saw that Paul used the illustration of an olive tree to describe this unveiling of the mystery. And he said in this olive tree there were certain branches that were broken off of it, those branches representing Israel because of their disbelief in Jesus. And there were wild olive shoots then that were grafted into the olive tree, referring to the Gentiles who came to believe in Christ. Now, if you look at verse 24, you see what Paul says about this. It says, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, it's referring to the Gentiles, then he says, how much more then will these, the natural branches, referring to Israel, be grafted back into their own olive tree. So here's Paul anticipating that although the branches of the Jews have been broken off, there's going to be a time when they're grafted back in. And then that leads to verses 25 and 26, and again, the statement in verse 26 that all Israel will be saved. Now, what's make, what makes this statement complex, what makes this issue kind of difficult to resolve, I think the occasion for a lot of the disagreement is the fact that there is a very important distinction that Paul makes when he refers to Israel throughout the New Testament and in Romans in particular. And this is the distinction. Sometimes he'll refer to Israel in the broad sense. And by that he means ethnic, national Israel. All Israelites regardless of what they happen to believe. But Paul also sometimes refers to Israel in a narrower sense, by which he means a kind of a, a spiritual Israel. And this narrow sense is a smaller body of people within the broader sense or the broader category of Israelites. In other words, the spiritual Israelites are the ones who have come to faith in Jesus, and they exist within the broader, larger body of ethnic national Israel. And so we'll see throughout Romans here how that distinction is made many times. And so when you see a phrase like, all Israel will be saved, the question is, what, which Israel is he referring to? And that's the occasion for the disagreement. So let me show you an example of what I mean as I go through some examples in Romans. For instance, with regard to the title Jew or circumcision. Circumcision is a a right that belonged to Israel. Paul, back in chapter 2, says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, that's the broader Israel, ethnic Israel, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. So now that's the narrower spiritual Israel. To belong to spiritual Israel is a matter of the heart, a matter of trusting in Christ. So really there's a sense in which every Christian here is actually a Jew, according to what Paul is saying here. Spiritually speaking, if you're a Christian, you're a Jew, even though you might be an American or Egyptian or, or Indian. 
You're a Jew, according to Paul, because of this spiritual understanding of Israel. Another example. Here's maybe even a clearer example. Romans 9, 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So here's the word Israel being used in the same verse in two different ways. Not all who are descended from national, broader Israel belong to the true spiritual Israel, is what Paul's saying here in 9.6. He goes on in 9, 7, and 8, using the language of the children of Abraham. Children of Abraham refers to those who are Jews. And he says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, That is, those who are descendants of Abraham and therefore ethnic or national Jews. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, national ethnic Israel, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring, referring to spiritual Israel, those who have trusted in God's Abrahamic promise ultimately fulfilled in the giving of Jesus as Savior. And so one more addition to this. Back in chapter 11, uh, you might remember a few sermons ago, we talked about Elijah and how Elijah thought that he was the only believer left and became very discouraged. And God said this to Elijah. He said, Elijah, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so, what God is saying here is, yes, the large majority of ethnic national Israel is plagued with unbelief, but God is saying, but I've kept a spiritual remnant for myself, true believers and followers of the true God. And so this spiritual Israel idea can also be described by the word remnant. Spiritual Israel is the remnant. Now, one interpretation of this phrase, all Israel will be saved, is that all Israel simply means the remnant. A a small group, very similar to the 7,000 that God kept for himself, just a small number of spiritual Israel, believing Christian Jews within the broader category or body of national Jews, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, all he's saying is that the the remnant, that very small remnant, will be saved. And that was the view that I held until yesterday. (laughs) Um, So I might change my view again by the end of this week, I I, I don't know, but um, there are just a couple of things that, that make that hard for me to, to accept. And so let me share these with you. If you look again at verse 25, um, Paul says, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. So he's saying that a partial hardening, not a full hardening, not a, not, not a, uh, a permanent harding, hardening has come upon Israel in their unbelief and rejection of Jesus. And that hardening is going to continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is, until all the Gentiles who God intends to save 
actually come to faith and believe in Jesus. So there is an elect number of people that God has determined to save from before the foundation of the world. That number is fixed. And when God saves all of those people among the Gentiles, the implication here is the hardening is going to be lifted because then in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. So if this remnant exists along with the hardening of Israel, and that hardening is then lifted, it would seem odd if all Paul is saying is that the remnant will just stay basically a small little remnant within the larger body of Israel. If the hardening is lifted, shouldn't something be changing here? That it's not just a remnant anymore, but something greater, something bigger than the remnant. That makes it hard for me to think that, it's, that the remnant is continuing if the hardening is being lifted. That suggests a significant change. Uh, another difficulty with the view that all Israel simply means a small remnant is the way this chapter ends at verses 33 to 36, which we're going to get to here in a moment. And I already read it, but you know, in that passage, Paul just breaks into this burst of praise and astonishment and wonder at God's plan being fulfilled in all Israel being saved. And the question is, why would Paul be so overwhelmed with astonishment if God is basically just saving the same remnant that he'd always intended to save and always been saving? There was this tiny remnant, and now he's going to keep this tiny remnant, and that's all there is to it, and then Paul is astonished by that? I, I don't know. That, that doesn't seem convincing to me. Again, it seems like Paul is expecting that something bigger, something greater is going to be happening here. And so I think what Paul means here, all Israel will be saved, is that after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, sometime in the future that there is going to be a mass scale conversion of the Jewish nation. Maybe not every single individual in the nation. We see many occasions in the Bible where the word all doesn't mean every single individual, but just a great majority, a great number of, of Jews. And I think that's what Paul is saying here, that a time is coming when there's going to be like a revival, a mass revival in the Jewish nation of people coming to Christ and becoming Christians. There's about 16 million Jews in the world today. So it would be something close to 16 million people coming to faith. You know, at the exact same time, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know. But some kind of a mass scale conversion. Something more than the remnant. Something bigger than that. I think is in our future. So, some implications of, of this, of this view. A lot more can be said here and there are other views that I don't have time to go into, but some implications of this. And not just all Israel will be saved, but everything that Paul has been saying here in chapter 11. First of all, we must maintain the belief that there is one people of God. Just one. The analogy that Paul is using of the olive tree would seem to support this. Paul doesn't tell us about a Jewish olive tree and a Gentile olive tree, as if they're two separate trees. He's talking about one tree. Gentiles were grafted in, in verse 27, and I already read verse 24 to you, where Paul expects that the natural branches are going to be grafted back into their own olive tree. It's the same tree. 
One tree, one people of God. So here's how Ephesians chapter 2 describes it in verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Jesus has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. The two refers to Jews and Gentiles. There were two, now there's going to be one. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God, Jews and Gentiles, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and the tension that exists between Jews and Gentiles. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross, among many other things. He abolished the differences between Jews and Gentiles and brought them together as one people of God. And so therefore, friends, we should not expect that national ethnic Israel will someday regain its status as the covenant people of God. Don't expect that to happen. National Israel is not the people of God. The church of Jesus Christ is the people of God. Those who trust in Christ, those who are leaning on his life, death, and resurrection for their salvation, all throughout the world and all throughout the ages, as Eric said, those are the people of God. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I don't expect that that's going to be reversed and we're going to go back to some radical distinction between Jew and Gentile. We don't look for a new temple to be built. We don't look for a reestablishment of the priesthood. We don't look for the reinstated sacrifices because all of those have been fulfilled and abrogated in the work of Christ. One people of God. But secondly, there's one way of salvation as well. One way of salvation. Look in verses 26 and 27 here where Paul quotes Isaiah uh, 59 and 27. He kind of conflates these two verses. And right after saying all Israel will be saved in verse 26, he goes on and he says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is Paul expecting here? He's looking forward here, or quoting, not looking forward to, he's after Jesus, but he's quoting the Old Testament, which was looking forward to a deliverer, that's Jesus. A deliverer who's going to come in fulfillment of the covenant promises to lay down his life, shed his blood, to take away the sins of those who trust in him. And the connection is that that's how Israel is going to be saved, by trusting in that Jesus. And there is no other option for them or for anyone else. There are not two simultaneous paths to salvation. There are not two tracks, one for Christians who believe in Jesus and one for Jews who do their best to be good Jews. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. There is only one way. There's um, no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And it's the man, Jesus Christ. If we can be saved by our morality, or by our religion, or by our Jewishness, then Christ died for nothing. One way of salvation, and that leads to the last implication, that means that there is one gospel for the Jews. In other words, as Christians, we must be prepared and expend our efforts and prayers 
to evangelize the Jews. We need to present Jesus to them as the one way of salvation and call them to trust in him for salvation. Because there is no other way for them to be saved. Just like there's no other way for you to be saved. There's no difference. Paul says this. This is Paul's heart, and this ought to be our heart. Brothers, he says, chapter 10, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. Paul clearly doesn't think they're saved by being Jews. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and then seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Only belief in Christ is their possibility for anybody's salvation, including the Jewish people. So that is my treatment of all Israel will be saved, the meaning that I, I think is most natural. I totally understand there are different views and would love to hear your perspective on that, but let's move on to the last point, amazement. Amazement. Has God abandoned Israel? Chapters 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, through this whole time, Paul's been unpacking this, talking about this in great detail, discussing this whole question. And now it's like Paul has been climbing this mountain over these three chapters. Finally, he's up to the mountaintop. He's, he's reached the summit. And now he stands up on the mountain and he just gazes over everything that he had been teaching. And his response is recorded for us in verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You know, he just, just spontaneously just bursts into this expression of wonder and amazement and astonishment because he looks back at the wisdom of God and how he's worked this way out for people from all over the world, Jews and Gentiles both, to have relationship with him, have their sins forgiven and be saved because of how he's planned it and worked it out in the giving of his son and the way he's shown mercy to all kinds of people throughout the world and Paul is just overcome. And you know what? Verses 33 to 36 are such a wonderful description of worship. That, that's what worship is. Worship is being amazed at God and what he has done. That, that, that's, that's the essence of it, just standing in astonishment at his wisdom, love, power, grace. Here's how Nancy Lee DeMoss says that worship is a believer's response to God's revelation of himself. It's expressing wonder awe and gratitude for the worthiness, the greatness, and the goodness of our Lord. It is the appropriate response to God's person, His provision, His power, His promise, and His plan. Worship. Two things we see here based on this conclusion to chapter 11. Worship is always based in the truth. What Paul is responding to here is the truth that God, by His Holy Spirit, had given to him Worship is not just having a certain feeling or an emotion. It's not just shedding tears. It can include that. But just because you have a certain feeling or emotion doesn't mean you're worshiping. Worship is a response to the revealed truth about who God is and what he has done. That's true worship. 
You can have all kinds of feelings and emotions based on some experience you had last week or your excitement about upcoming vacation. That's not worship. <laughs> Even though you might be in a church at the time, worship is based in truth. That's why here at New Life, we saturate our services with Scripture. The call to worship is Scripture. We hear the Scripture read before we confess our sins. We hear an assurance of pardon from Scripture. The sermons are based in Scripture. When we have the Lord's Supper, we read Scripture. And before you leave, a benediction is given, a declaration of Scripture, of the truth of God. So that all of our worshipful response is based on truth. And then the second thing here is that truth should lead to worship. Worship is based on truth, and truth should lead to worship. That when we sit and we hear a sermon, we hear the word going forth, when we spend time in the word of God, we should be very careful about having a kind of cold, detached, clinical, overly analytical response or approach to the word. The word of God is not like a frog to be dissected in class, to take it all apart and examine all of its various tiny little details. That the word of God is the creator and redeemer of the universe speaking to you. And the only appropriate response to that is to read in anticipation of being amazed at the goodness and grace of our God. That we would say as we read the word, as we're about to sing here, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for your abundant grace and seeking to save so many people in this world, Jew and Gentile alike. Father, we ask that you would make us bold in sharing the gospel with others, and that as we hear your word and read your word, that we would be amazed of the goodness of Jesus Christ for sinners. In his name we pray. Amen.